Hi, everyone. A very warm welcome to another edition of the Proposal Works podcast, where we talk with proposal experts who share real stories of how they win. I'm Pete Nichols. I'm coming to you from Copenhagen in Denmark, and I'm joined today by Jennifer Hamaker. Jennifer, a very good day to you. Where are you joining us from today? Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Jennifer Hamaker. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm in the Tennessee area today. Nashville. How's Nashville today? It's wonderful. It's a good day out, pretty warm. So uh, it's May. So we're finally getting over the winter hump. So that's good. <laughs> so nice. So nice. For folks, if you haven't yet heard of Jennifer, Jennifer Hamaker is the founder and president of Amelie Consulting a professional consulting firm that provides proposal, marketing, and business development services. Now, Amelie, I understand, is named from the word ameliorate, Jennifer, which means to improve and make better, which is at the core of Amelie's services and your ability to deliver above customer expectations. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you personally, I understand you have nearly 20 years of experience of producing winning proposals. Personally, I hate doing proposals, honestly, and you've been doing it for 20 years. So hats off to you. Uh, you're a foundation certified member of the Association of Proposal Management Professionals, and you hold a Bachelor of Science degree. Mm -hmm. That's right. So the title for our show today is Tailoring Your Proposal to Your Client. We have seven questions that I'll be asking. Let's unpack the real story. So let's start with question one, Jennifer. Who is your ideal client and what do they truly want? So our ideal client is really just someone that wants to win more business. This usually includes proposals. So RFPs, RFIs, RFQs, those types of procurement responses. We help them to win more business through those responses. Perfect. Thank you. Question two then is the problems. So I'm sure that doesn't always go smoothly. What are the problems that they normally face? And what does that look like? So definitely time is usually the biggest problem, right? Because proposals can come in a number of different formats and directions and deadlines. I mean, I've seen everything from two weeks to two months to two days. And so time is usually a, a big issue. Uh, the other issue is the ability to tailor, which obviously is often affected by the time uh, that you have to even complete the proposal response. So both of those factors usually come into play, you know, working against the client in order to produce a tailored response that really helps them win. Yeah, I imagine those things almost work against each other. Then you have yeah. a deadline and you want to tailor this thing to make it personalized, mm -hmm. but uh, you just haven't got the luxury of time. So that yeah. leads us well into, into question three, really, is uh, what are the mistakes that people make and, mm -hmm. and are the things that they try also that just don't work out? Yeah, so really overtaxing the proposal managers, I think, is often a key mistake because obviously, you know, your business development, your salespeople, they really just want to win, right? And so they want to say yes to everything. Well, when it comes to RFPs, you don't necessarily have, you know, the, the time to respond to every single procurement. So you do, I think, need to be more selective in what proposals you actually respond to and what you want to really go after. And do you have, you know, a capture effort underway? Do you know the client? Are you responding blindly to this RFP and they're not even going to expect a response from your company? So you really have to look at which opportunities are best to respond to that you have the highest chance of winning and then tailor and focus your RFP responses 
towards those particular procurements, not every single procurement. And that really helps avoid, you know, overtaxing your, your population. It sounds like that would be quite challenging to have a client not want to respond to everything that they see in front of them. <laughs> yes, it is definitely, definitely a challenge. Um, but if you trim it to the ones where you are confident, like you're definitely going to win, like this is going to work out, then you're, even your proposal staff are more excited to tailor, right? Um, they're more excited to make this a, a, a winner too. And by the way, that, that kind of tails on the reason why we're called Amelia Consulting at my company is after the word ameliorate, which means to improve or to make better. And that's what we're all focused on is what can we do in this response right now uh, to make it the most powerful, most winning response we've ever seen before. When that uh, proposal uh, person, you know, that's receiving all of those responses opens your company's proposal up against all the other competitors, what is going to make their mind go, wow, this one, I've got to talk to them more. There's something about this proposal and the way it's tailored that makes me think, you know, I've got to at least make these guys the finalists. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the proposal response itself won't make you win, right? Uh, because pricing and other things are outside of our control. But if you have a really powerful tailored response, they're going to at least send you to the finalist round and you're going to make it to that, you know, best and final offer period. I'm glad you describe it that way, Jennifer, because I think we're really getting into the realm of where a proposal that has been prepared, prepared with a professional mm -hmm. who knows how to properly make a tailored proposal stand out versus everyone else who's maybe kind of making it up as they go. Yeah. What, what do I put in this proposal? I'll respond to the RFP, but how do you make it stand out? So that's a perfect lead into question four mm -hmm. without disclosing the neat kind of sensitive customer situations that I'm sure are, are there. What's a real life example of where and, and how you've helped? Yeah. So actually one of our clients is a healthcare technology firm. And that particular company had contacted us when, unfortunately, their proposal person had just put in their two-week notice. Um, they had, yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. They had one uh, proposal person doing all of their RFPs, so there was no team. And that person was very overtaxed, overworked. And when they put their notice in, um, an RFP that they had actually been going after and doing a lot of capture work on had finally dropped and they had no one to write the response. Um, so they called us in, we came in, and of course we took care of that immediate need, but we also took a step back once that one was submitted and put in a bid, no bid decision tree. Um, so I actually brought in some, some rational steps to help them decide which ones they should go after rather than everything. Things like a bid, no bid decision tree, having a standardized process for how things are done, um, and your review periods and, and things like that, it not only helps keep the, the, the flow going in a very succinct manner, but it also makes sure, again, that you're not grasping at straws, right? And, and trying to bid everything. There's a rational to, you know, process to it. There's that bid no bid process. And then once it's a go, there's a process for the response. And having those things in place, uh, it really helps button up the entire response effort instead of a, Let's just bid it. And, and that was, you know, the case that they were in, unfortunately. And they did lose someone, but they're in a really good shape now. 
And we do still help them from an augment perspective to, you know, when their proposal staff get taxed again. It really sounds like uh, the fact that you needed to put a bid, no bid decision tree Mm -hmm. in place and that the existing single proposal person was really just flat out trying to keep up. Do you recall with the the proposal that you then came in and helped that had two weeks notice of uh, how did that go? Do you remember? Yeah, so it, it actually went fairly well once we were able to dive in. You know, clearly they let us kind of, you know, take control of the management of the effort and the response itself. And once we were able to do that and get a good schedule in place for the, you know, the remaining time that we had left on the response, we were able to get a good response out the door. Um, There wasn't an extension on that one, you know, as is often the case, and that's okay. Uh, But we still were able to get a really powerful response out the door and uh, tailor it. And that's the important thing is actually taking a look at the RFP and saying, what does this client want? What are they getting at that they want? And how can I tailor my solution to them? In fact, a lot of times, like, you know, companies say, you know, well, some things are just going to be boilerplate, right? Like my company background, what does my company do? That, that's just going to be a boilerplate answer. Well, I'm a big fan of, no, that's not true, right? Because let, let's say your company does government solutions and commercial solutions. Well, then you're going to want to, in your response, when you talk about your company, talk about all the government stuff that you do first, if it's a government procurement, mm-hmm. and then wait until the second, third, fourth paragraph to talk about commercial stuff. So even something that looks basic can be tailored. Now, I mean, certain things like when was your company founded? I mean, that's going to be the same answer. But uh, outside of that, I mean, it's going to be a tailored response. And you have to take that approach um, to every single question. They're asking it for a reason. These people don't want to, you know, just read for the sake of reading. Um, So they're really asking these questions for a purpose. And you've got to convince them of why it's your company that should be awarded, nobody else. How important is that? It's not one of my seven questions, but it just, yeah. it's just such an interesting aspect here. How important is the tailoring part to your comment earlier, Jennifer, about making it pop? Yeah, absolutely. It is definitely, I would say, one of the most important. And I always use this analogy, which I think is, is helpful for people to really get it. Um, we've all seen a junk email, right? And you, you open up the junk email and it says, hi, Jennifer Hammaker. I hope you're having a great day today at Amelia Consulting or, you know, whatever it says that looks tailored. And then you quickly go past those first two lines and you quickly realize, wait a minute, this entire thing is 100% boilerplate. Well, what are my odds of truly fully reading the rest of that email then? That, you know, it's a zero, right? And I've, I quickly trash it, you know, throw it away, even though it kind of looked tailored. So I always put a big warning sign to people when they're doing the same thing. If they have a standard letter template, which a lot of companies do out there, that just has you know little markers for you know client name to go here, and a lot of people prepare their libraries on in the same way with these little client markers. Remember that client is going to catch up on that in two seconds when they read it. They're going to see that you just simply replaced their name, and that's it. So your letter should be a blank letter template. Your executive summary should be blank. It should be something that's freshly written with every single RFP response. And then the same thing when it goes, comes to a library, have a library, a library is a really great resource, but remember that's your initial content to work from. It's not the answer, it's just the initial content. And I think 
taking that approach and really thinking through it like that uh, and remembering what happens with a junk email, they, they trash it. They're going to do the exact same thing with your proposal response. Nobody wants to read 200 pages of boilerplate content. Yeah. They want to read something that was written for them. You almost feel your heart sink a little bit where you see the uh, message starts and you think, hey, this is yeah. written to me. And then you realize, no, it's not written to me. And I'm a little bit sad and yes. yeah, right. in the <laughs> bin. Right. <laughs> and uh, right. yeah, take your uh, unsubscribe to the mailing list. Uh, yeah, yeah, perfect. I hadn't heard that analogy with the junk email. It just makes so much sense. And, uh, and because you see that so often, a personalized email pops. So the RFP right. to be tailored. Yeah, I love it. Same thing. Okay. That's a great a real example and the tailoring there, which you need the extra time to put into. Yeah. So the bid, no bid tree makes sense too. That's great. Um, I'd like to then, uh, with question five, Jennifer, is um, talk more about the challenges because you've been at this for 20 years and I imagine there's been some quite tough times <laughs> working with clients or deadlines, all of these uh, competing things. Can you share with us some challenges that you've personally faced along the way and, and what you've learned from that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, life's full of challenges and, and you know, high demands and all of that stuff, especially in the work environment. And I, it's been no different for me in proposals. I've learned with people in the RFP world, uh, some people love it and some people hate it and are like, how in the world can you do this, um, you know, for a living? But it, it is at the end of the day rewarding. You know, the, one of the biggest challenges often again is time and having the ability to just handle the load. Some seasons, you know, some companies are seasonal in that they get really slammed in the summer or the spring or the fall. And staying, you know, with a heavy, you know, good mindset when you're, you know, faced with 20, 30 RFPs on your plate at the same time across your team is quite daunting. But again, staying grounded to why you're doing what you're doing and what is the ultimate purpose. It is to win more business. And as us as a proposal people, just winning, that right there was worth all the long nights. It was worth all the weekends. It was worth the big headache, right? Because we often have that, you know, when it comes to, to, to RFPs. And I will say too, one thing for me personally is the risky chances in life. And, and you know, I, I can't, you know, go away from this question without mentioning it, that I was an FTE for years. And I was a proposal manager that built up teams and I did this many, many times over. And many clients asked for my help and, and support on, on what they could do, you know, to get additional RFP assistance or what have you. And I'm always a yes person. And so I said yes to pretty much every opportunity. And then I quickly realized, you know, wait a minute, I'm spending all my nights and weekends helping these clients. You know, it's a big risk to go away from the FTE world and walk away from a full-time job and start my own business. But I did take that risk years ago. And it has certainly paid out. And now not only am I able, am able to help, you know, a single company that I was as an FTE, but we can help multiple companies all across the world. And that was a huge risk that I took, but with a huge payout. And likewise, I would say for companies, it's the same thing. Remember going back to what I said earlier on RFPs, and you don't want to go after every single opportunity. Maybe you truly just want as a company to focus on one single opportunity. It's a big risk, right, to do that and to not just bid everything. But that risk may result in a huge payout because if you have a big capture process, if it's a tailored response, all of those things are in place because you have the time, then you're going to walk away able to win work that you know could be several hundred million dollars 
that is a big payout and that was worth it. Wow. So being a full-time employee as a proposal writer where you must have had 20, 30 proposals on your plate and uh, by the sound of it, probably not a a lot of choice of the fact that you had that much on your plate at the time. If you think back, how much say did you have in a bid-no-bid process, as you recall, when you were employed? Yeah, it's tough, especially from the proposal perspective, because we don't have, you know, the sales quota hanging over our head, right? So we can definitely speak up in opportunities and different meetings and stuff like that going over bid, no bid. But at the end of the day, most people often find it's the salesperson or whoever the executive is at their company that has the final say. I think though us as proposal people should be empowered to speak up and say, we just don't have enough time on this one. Remember, they're not writing it. They're not putting the whole thing together. We are, and we know that, right? So if we see that it's got a one-week turnaround, right, um, and questions are due by 5 o'clock the same day, we have to recognize that there's just physically no time to respond to this. Or at least say, look, if we want to respond to this, then we need to now no bid these other four opportunities we're already working on. Because there has to be a level of reasonableness, you know, uh, against the effort. If all I have to do is respond to everything uh, and we never no bid anything, then yes, I've got to use boilerplate. I have no choice. I have no choice because I've got to meet the deadline. And salespeople need to realize that that's just not going to you know, be effective strategy to win more business, right? Yeah. Did you find the magic phrase when you were employed of, <laughs> um, of something that allowed maybe the sales reps with the high pressure quota that they're carrying or the sales manager where you actually <laughs> were able to get them to stop and consider, don't just run at everything? What worked for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say on an individual RFP level, one thing that works really well, apart from the bid, no bid decision tree, because that also is a great tool, is to actually just quickly create a schedule for that particular opportunity that you think should probably be a no bid because of time. Because the moment the sales rep realizes they have to get references, they have to get you executive summary content, that they have to get all of their stuff to you, wait a minute, like within the next day (laughs) or the next two days, even they're going to be more apt to go, whoa, guys, I mean, there's no way we can do this. Also, another thing is is bringing other people in the fold into the call. Don't make it a call just between you and the sales rep. Make it a call between you, the sales rep, um, the people that do the pricing at your company, the people that do, you know, the other key SMEs at your company for whatever you're pitching. Um, Those people also have a big voice because they have to stop what they're doing also, right? Um, to give you content and and to help respond to the procurement. So having the, that backup on the line, I think is also a really good thing. Another good thing that you've got to do as a proposal person is keep a tracking log, whether that's in Salesforce or some other CM, CRM, or whether that may be an Excel spreadsheet, like an old school way, um, whatever works for you, yeah. keep track of every single RFP you're working on and your win-loss rate. Because if you can be reflective on a quarterly basis of here's how many proposals we sent out the door, here's how many we won or lost, and why did we win or lose them, I think it's an eye-opening experience of, okay, well, wait a minute, maybe we should back up a little bit and just focus on a couple of opportunities, not every opportunity. Yeah, fantastic. Have you indicated in your logs yeah. the level of tailoring maybe so you can spot which ones you had the time to work on which ones were just belted out the door 
Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So in the response, we have, or not in the response, but in the log, we have when we got the, the RFP, when the RFP was released, which is always very funny because sometimes the salesperson sits on it accidentally for two weeks and then sends it to us. Um, so we had the release date when we received it date, the date it was submitted and the resulting, it's a, it's an automatic calculation in our spreadsheet that calculates how many business days we truly had to work on it. And then in the comments, we put how much we had the ability to tailor that response. And when you can do that and then you can run reports off that information, it is very, very powerful in a, you know, learning on what we bid or no bid in the future. Great. So, so it sounds like that's something that you put in place with clients as well, do you? In addition to the bid, no bid decision tree, it's like, where's your log? That is exactly right. Every single one of our clients has an RFP log and we take a quarterly kind of effort. Um, we like to do quarterly because it's not too taxing. It's, you know, four times a year. That's it. But we actually have a meeting that we tend to do with each of our clients on a quarterly basis to just sit down with them, go over all the opportunities that we have done to date um, within that quarter. And, you know, what, what went right, what went wrong, what we probably should have no bidded. And those kind of insights let people go, well, wait a minute, let's think more on that next opportunity. And it really has them to be able to pause the next time we get something in house. We've seen it to be very, very effective. Um, and we've actually won our clients some really, really cool work. Um, we had one client in particular that won a huge state bid, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. They put everything else to the side. We did not bid anything else. And we literally just helped their proposal team get this one submission out the door and they won it. Uh, but again, that was a combination of great capture effort, the most powerful response we'd ever put together. It not only looked um, aesthetically beautiful, but it read like a work of art. And when you can do that, that client sees that and goes, oh my goodness, these guys are great. These guys get what's, what's, go you know, what's going on with me and why I need their help. Um, and so they, they won that procurement. It's, it's really, really rewarding when that happens. Wow. I can imagine that that must've really stood out amongst all of the other boilerplate responses poured in. Uh, yeah. Wow. That really backs up that kind of less is more and, oh, yes. uh, really getting behind that proposal to make it pop. That's right. That's right. Now you went from being full-time employee into setting up Emily Consulting. And uh, how long ago was that, Jennifer, you made that change? So that was back in 2017, um, which time definitely flies. Um, so we've been in business several years now, and we now help several clients all across the world. We actually got our first Canadian client uh, several months back. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, cool. That, was, that was great. And so we help clients from all different industries. Everything from um, construction and design build procurements uh, to environmental RFPs to healthcare, healthcare payer, healthcare technology, healthcare provider, and even just IT companies. So we help a lot of IT companies. And then we're also in the energy sector, oil and gas. Uh, so we tend to have our foothold in just about everything, which is, it's, it's great because it's exciting. I always say that it sounds silly, but an RFP really is like opening a Christmas present. You have no clue what's in it. <laughs> um, it could either be something you love <laughs> and are excited you know, about, or it could be something that you're like, oh, Lord, <laughs> this is going to be you know, a bit of a nightmare, but I can do it. So it is you know, just like opening a new present. And uh, it's, it's a fun experience every time. And 
when you're a consultant and you help so many different types of clients in so many different industries, it also makes it even that more exciting because we never have the same week, two weeks, you know, twice, you know, ever. <laughs> wow. I think I'm getting some insight here as to why, even though you managed to leave the full-time profession doing this and then chose to make it your life as your business as well. So my next question is, uh, what is it about what you do that you find most fulfilling? Yeah, so definitely um, winning the client's new business, I would say, is just the top because, you know, they're paying us, right, to, to help them and come in and help them. And uh, when we don't win the work, we're just as sad and, you know, about it as they are, right? Um, but when they win the business, especially if it's a small to medium-sized business, that, you know, a $30 million win is huge for their company. Oh, that is the most rewarding thing ever. And to see them, you know, hire 50 new employees because of the work you won. Open a new office in a totally different city because of the work you won. I mean, we've seen clients literally just transform from a small client to a medium to a large client just in winning them more business. And it is very exciting to see. And then the same thing goes with our federal client. So we have some clients that, you know, do DOD work or Army work. Well, one contract could literally mean the make or break of the company. It could mean they, them laying off people if they don't get the recompete, or it could mean, you know, expanding their business even bigger. And so when we win those, you know, works for them as well, it is phenomenal. And it's so rewarding. And it's a great party that we can all be a part of. And that keeps me going. It keeps our team going at Amelie. It keeps all of us going every single day. Wow. Um, and that's inspiring um, because of the, the change that you're making. And so what intrigues me about how you first get to be engaged with a, a company like that. So all those examples that you were recalling there, and I can see it. You know, people probably can't see your face unless we put this to video, the passion that you have for this. What is it that happened in those firms that allowed you to come in and, and help them? Yeah. So every firm has a different story, which is always interesting too. Some firms have a crazy story, like the one I mentioned earlier of someone putting in their two weeks notice um, and then they have nobody. Other, other companies have an established team, but they're not winning a lot of work and they don't know why they're not winning a lot of work. Like uh, we have a team, we're responding to tons of stuff and we don't win anything. Why is that? So having us come in I think is always a good thing because we're coming in from a completely neutral perspective, right? We don't have, you know, insight into the day-to-day the -day politics, right, that often go on in companies. And so we're coming in from a neutral perspective, able to just go in and see what is going on. Why are they not winning more work? Is it a tailoring issue? Is it a timing taxing issue? So are they, you know, just saying yes to everything, you know, you know, and not really thinking through things? Is it a, you know, lack of you know, participation issues. So are they not managing the process effectively? Are they not engaging SMEs effectively and, and sales staff? So where is the gap? And then sometimes it's, it's just a flat out resource issue. Like they just simply have not enough FTEs to get the job done and everyone's overworked and overburdened. So having us come in uh, from a neutral perspective, either to help you figure out why you're not winning or help you to win the ones you want to win. So we have other clients, let's say, for example, that, that have a good proposal team, they have a good process in place and whatnot, but they have this one opportunity 
that they know is going to be a make or break for the company. When those kind of things happen, they like to bring us in and we sit down with them and we go through the opportunity. We do a SWOT analysis. We do win theme analysis. We do all of those kind of things to see what can we do to make this response the most powerful that's ever gone out the door. And when you have someone coming in from a neutral perspective, you know, like us at Amelie, we're able to bring that more than someone that's, you know, just seeing the exact same RFPs and seeing the exact same, you know, company stuff for years and years and years. Yeah. And maybe tied up in some of the politics of how things are normally done there. You can come in and say, well, let's clean slate. And uh, it must be quite <laughs> eye-opening for a company if they haven't hired a professional proposal writer certified to, to come in as you, Jennifer, and, uh, and to experience the difference of running That's a professional, right. professional uh, bid response. So let's, uh, as we wrap up then, I'd love if you could think, because you've shared so many tips here, mm-hmm. what would we leave our listeners with of a, a valuable tip or resource that they could take away and use right away today? Yeah, so I would say kind of the main tip that I would definitely tell people to implement if they haven't already uh, would be a proposal library. Many of us in the proposal world have heard of a proposal library. Some of us have them in place. Some of us don't have them in place. Having a proposal library is a good tool. And there's tons of you know solutions out there. There's Quividian, there's Chorus, there's PMAPs that I think was actually recently bought out by another company. So there's lots of different tools out there. And then there's the good old file folder structure if you really wanted to be a little bit more old school, right? While a proposal library can be great because it can enable you to quickly find an answer. For example, you know, what does your company do? I mean, that, that's pretty much in every RFP, right? So having the ability to quickly go somewhere to one place, do a quick search through a search engine, find content uh, to populate into the response, it can help you know, populate that response fairly quickly, especially remember if time is not on your side and you don't have much time. That being said, though, I always heavily caution people because let's think about it. What is that RFP library made up of? It's made up of answers to another client's RFP, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not, it's not an answer to your RFP, to your particular new client's needs or wants or what they put in their RFP. It's an old answer to, to some other procurement. So you have to keep that in mind because remember, if all you do is just swap out the client name, they're going to know you, you bowler plated that <laughs> and that you didn't really tailor that answer. Yeah. So a library is helpful, but only helpful if it's your base answer. It's not the answer. It's just your base. And if you treat it like that and make sure that every single answer, you paste it in, but then right above it, you think through, look at that as a guidebook, but write a fresh response. That evaluator is going to feel it and see it right? They're going to know that that wasn't a boilerplate answer. Right. So drawing on those previous proposals. And if, if you haven't today got the, the budget to put in a, a chorus, a Qvidian, or um, one of the commercial solutions to solve that, is there anything that you could do as a quick tip if you've just got Google Drive or, or something? How would you start putting a library together that isn't going to shock someone like Jennifer when they come in and say, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, does it, what would your tip be for that? There's, there's two big tips. Um, because you're right, many companies are very small and they might not even have a proposal budget. And oftentimes us in the proposal world, trying to convince someone that we need this several thousand dollar library is hard when they don't, they don't write the RFPs we do, right? And somehow the work gets out the door anyway without a library. So they don't really see the value. 
So when it comes to things like that, I, I think one, the immediate thing you could do now before even starting a file folder or OneDrive structure is make sure that tracking log that you have is sorted or sortable by type or genre of what your company pitches. So for example, let's say your company is an IT company that has 10 products or solutions. Make sure that that tracking log that you have, right where you're tracking your win rate and stuff, has a drop-down selection box of what the product was that you pitched in that RFP, right? And maybe it has another column of secondary product. So that way, when you have an RFP that drops for that same product, you can quickly go to the Excel, filter it, buy that product, and quickly find, without too much digging, what are the last two or three procurements you sent out the door for that exact same product? That way, at least at a bare minimum, <laughs> you can quickly pull up those you know, two or three that you submitted last time on the same product. That is kind of an immediate cure. Kind of your next step cure would definitely be to take your file folder structure, whatever that looks like at your company, whether you use Box or OneDrive or whatever, and go ahead and just create individual folders for each product or solution or you know, whatever your company does. Even if your company is a, like a, a consulting company or some sort of services company, well, there's different types of services, right? So, so having a folder structure like that also is helpful. And then you can just take a good old Word doc and go ahead and just paste in Q&A pairs, kill the, the client name, just put like the little markers in of you know, client name. And that way, again, bare minimum, you've got something you can quickly pull up and search into to find an answer. Also, if you think about it, you're kind of already prepping, right? You're kind of already prepping your file drive to be library, you know, friendly. So when you have the budget and you can, you know, purchase, you know, a, a Quividian or other type of tool, you've already got Q&A pairs set up in this file drive. And that's going to really help you when you stand up your library, uh, when you finally get the approval and the budget, because those companies that do the proposal libraries, they're going to want to see all of your content and load your content. And you're already doing that work by, by getting that started. Yeah. And avoiding that massive uh, forklift reworking of uh, just a bucket load of stuff. Like people go to their accountant with uh, shoeboxes full of receipts. It's like, you don't want to be <laughs> that guy with a shoebox full of proposals. So Right. Fantastic tips there. Uh, it's been a pleasure tapping into your 20 years of experience, Jennifer, and also the, the passion that you have for winning with the client and the change that you bring into their organizations. So Jennifer, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it, Peter. It's great talking to you today. I'll see you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing Jennifer's real stories today as much as I did. You can find Jennifer at ameliconsulting.com. That's A-M-E-L-I consulting.com. Or on LinkedIn, look for Jennifer Hamaker, H-A-M-A-K-E-R. And if you like what we're doing here at the Proposal Works podcast, please head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. And if you know a business proposals expert, who has some amazing real stories of how to win better, please connect them with me on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Pete Nichols at Hubdo, H-U-B-D-O. I would love to chat with them about coming on the show to share their stories and to help other good businesses to win better.